Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Hello and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast, the first Sox Machine Podcast of 2020. I'm Greg Nix, filling in for Josh Nelson, who is in China. I assume this is part of his grand plan to expand Sox Machine to the unwashed masses and uh, really go global with White Sox fandom. Um, He'll be back uh, for the next episode, but for now, I am filling in and we have some stuff to talk about because, of course, there was big news in White Sox land the uh, past week when Luis Robert signed a six-year extension with the club. So we'll talk about that. We will also project the opening day roster as things currently stand. We'll talk about a couple of moves that the Twins made to add to their starting rotation. And of course, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. So now joining me on the line to talk about all of those things is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, Jim Margulis. Hello, Jim. How's your new year going? so far it's not terribly different for the starts but uh can't complain how about you uh it's going pretty well mine the only big difference is that i'm trying to do whole 30 right now the sort of uh nutritional diet in which you cut out like grains and dairy and booze and pretty much everything good for 30 days uh Hmm. so so it, it's different. I, I don't know that I would say it's better, but uh, hopefully, you know, I'll feel healthier. Yeah, this is your uh, chance to, you know, new year, new host. Perhaps you can Wally <laughs> Pip out uh, Josh here, so yeah, don't I cut was, yourself out. Yeah, I was wondering whether I was, uh, if whether he was Wally Pip or, or whether, you know, he was like Derek Jeter and I'm Didi Gregorius. I don't know quite how... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> quite how the replacement hierarchy works but uh you know i get i was gonna say josh was too good to be wally pipped but i guess wally pip was pretty good right what isn't that part of the story yeah he's all right uh i i guess if you want to make it white Sox, he's chris getz and you're jason nix <laughs> there you go <laughs> i don't know that that's high praise for either of us but uh i'll take it i guess yeah you're not related because you don't have the unnecessary y in your name yeah, we've. My family has definitely talked about that about how we need to add the uh, the wise randomly, like Lance and Jason. Um, yep. But unfortunately, there's a there's another Knicks in the uh, Padres system who doesn't have the wise, so he's really ruining things for us. But mm. uh, yeah, and he and he could with Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Wise so abound. That that'll be a 2021 resolution. All Knicks have wise. Um, But for now, (laughs) we'll talk about the White Sox uh, and specifically Luis Robert. So as I mentioned, he signed a six-year extension, which it it didn't exactly come out of nowhere, but um, it was perhaps surprising how quickly it came together after there were a few rumblings. And I know that 
uh, you and Josh talked about it last week, and he he put the odds of an extension at 90%, and you put the odds, Jim, at, of an extension at 25%. So I guess my first question for you is, uh, are you surprised that it got done? I think I have to be. I don't think I can officially rewrite history and say, like, oh, yeah, I knew it was going to happen all along. I thought something could happen, but I thought it would take more time. I, I think the... Uh, yeah, as, as you mentioned, how soon it came together it surprised me, and also that it came together for more money than Eloy Jimenez signed for. You know, when you look at the, the, the prospect track record of each player and you look at just how certain Jimenez felt as a hitter, whereas Robert's track record is shorter, he's been banged up more, he's had a history of hand injuries, which, you know, as, as we know and we, as we've seen many times, can sap a guy's power and throw a guy off course for an entire year at a time. It didn't seem like he was a, a great bet to, I, I guess, earn that kind of money. Um, at least I could see him making a harder case for it. But yeah, as we also talked about him, the reason I was skeptic, yeah, I, I, I was, uh, I was skeptical that he would sign so early is that he did, uh, you know, make his big money already. So I guess he did have reason to hold out for more than LOA signed for. But I'm surprised it came together as quickly as it did. I thought it might drag in March a little bit, and yeah, you know, before a decision was made. But no, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. One, that it's going to end all service time arguments over Jimenez, or sorry, over Robert. And Nick Madrigal might be the only one we have left. That's kind of nice. Uh, also, I, I think it's, uh, you know, nice that Robert basically, you know, th these, these contracts are no longer huge team-friendly bargains. I think it can be very team-friendly if he does, you know, have a Mookie Betts or... Chris Bryant or Francisco Lindor trajectory, I think that'll help quite a bit in terms of managing the cost towards the third year of arbitration, first year of free agency. But uh, the White Sox are, you know, putting a little, they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're going out, a li out of a limb a little bit for this, just, uh, you know, guaranteeing a lot of money when he hasn't had an at-bats and has the injury history he does. So, you know, he, they have to accept some risk this time around. And I think that's fair when you're asking a guy to give up uh, a year or two of free agency. Yeah, I think um, to your point about being surprised that Robert would uh, sign an extension because he got such a large bonus, I wonder if sort of the flip side of him being a higher risk prospect than Jimenez is that, you know, he's had the injuries, he's had the ups and downs in performance, and maybe there's a little bit, maybe he's aware, or at least his representation is aware, that there is a lot more variance to how his career could play out, and so maybe it makes sense to, you know, lock in $75 million uh, as a pro without even knowing, is he going to be a major league player? So I, I kind of wonder if that played into Robert's side, and I guess for the, the Sox, you know, the yeah, the money is bigger than something like sales deal, um, and is it's not necessarily a huge underpay, if an underpay at all, for the arbitration years. But for the team, right, it's it's getting two more years of his prime without potentially having to fork out a two hundred million dollar contract if if everything goes right. I that's kind of how I saw the the calculus on each side uh, do you mm -hmm. think my read of that is is right uh do you think there's other factors that went into it no i think that's largely correct i you know when when these numbers get higher for extensions when it's no longer like low 30s for a chris sale type deal where sale already had one good year in the majors as a starter when that happened um you know now now they're you know having to pay 50 million guaranteed plus you know a couple of 20 million dollar options afterwards for a guy who's not had a major league at bat and isn't only one good professional season uh you know the, the gap is closing between what Jimena, uh what Robert could make and what he will make and at, at some point the calculus is you know it's dumb to try to bet on yourself for an extra maybe 15 to 20 million over the course of that deal. And and really when it comes to, I, I guess, you know, looking at it free agent years, um, you know, it is two officially, you know, they do get the first two years of his team control. But if, you know, you're really, um, I, I guess, for service time arguments or, or if, if you if you take the team side and service time manipulation they really only got one you know if, if robert was really going to say try to bet on himself and the white Sox were going to hold out uh they're going to get the seventh year of control and there was going to be anything he could do about it you know really he's powerless to do so unless chris bryant's thing really somehow um you know, I guess creates an earthquake across the landscape. But uh, when you look at it that way, he's only giving up one year of team control. So it, 
at some point it gets dumber to uh, turn it down than to accept it. And I think uh, getting more money than Jimenez got, I don't think it's an ego thing, but I think, uh, you know, Jimenez's deal was a considerable outlay for the Sox before a first major league plate appearance and for Robert to get more than that, I think is doing about as well as he can. Do you think that the sort of labor uncertainty uh, coming up in the next couple of years played into the decision on either side? Uh, I guess it doesn't hurt. Um, it doesn't hurt either side just because I think if uh, there is a dramatic transformation to the way players get compensated, it is going to be younger players getting paid more or arbitration, you know, maybe a complete rewrite of the arbitration year where that kicks in after the first full season. Or maybe it's something like uh, reaching free agency faster or free agency by a certain age to where, you know, guy Robert's age could be paid more than they thought, faster than they thought, or reach free agency faster. So uh, it does lock in some certainty uh, for both sides. And uh, I think even if they do rewrite it, you know, I, I guess it would be that Jimenez's deal and Robert's deal would not be um, something they, they, you know, wouldn't be prepared for or couldn't absorb because they're already prepared to do so. And it's not going to get like any cheaper, I guess, for younger players, I assume. So let's turn our attention, I guess, from down the line to the coming season. Uh, what kind of year do you think now that we know that Robert is starting in the majors, uh, that he'll be presumably, you know, if he's healthy, the opening day center fielder, what can we expect from him this season? Um, still, I think there are going to be some hard lessons to learn. I think, you know, like a Yohan Moncada type rookie season where there's going to be a lot of strikeouts. I think with Moncada, he was more patient and had to learn that, uh, you know, he couldn't, uh, uh, you know, I guess walk as much based on his own batting eye. He had to, uh, you know, also tighten up his strike zone along with, uh, you know, I guess laying off junk. I think Robert, he's more geared to swing and swing a lot. So he's going to have to learn to lay off junk. He's going to have to learn uh, where the holes in the strike zone are for major league pitchers, because I think that varies from minor league to major league. So I can see a lot of strikeouts. I can see him maybe challenging, you know, 150, 200 strikeouts over the course of a full season. If he, he was able, you know, his body and specifically his hand holds up with over the course of a full season. So I would count on it not being smooth and, that's why I wanted Robert up last year, just because I figured there would be some hard lessons to learn, and I'd rather see him learn those lessons in July, August, September of a true rebuilding season, rather than you know have him get in the way when all these other things are working, and you know he's I guess the one missing piece, uh, and isn't able to get there in time. Yeah, that's a little unfortunate, but I hope that if that does happen, that people will give Robert the time to learn, because I think uh, you know he did have a he did put himself on an unexpectedly fast track based on how his first year went. Uh, and he should get some time to uh, regroup and figure out uh, just exactly what pitchers are trying to do to him. Yeah, I think the nice thing for Robert is even though expectations will be high, I think for me and probably for a lot of White Sox fans, you know, I, I'm willing to give him a little bit of uh, room to grow just because at the very least I don't have to be watching another 300, 400 plate appearances of Adam Engel and a bunch of yeah. other guys who, who can't hit at all, right? So just seeing some kind of flashes from him will maybe be enough to, to sustain White Sox fans, uh, at least in the short term. I mean, obviously, he's a top five prospect in baseball, so expectations are going to be very high, but... Compared to what he's replacing, he's presumably going to be a big upgrade, and there's enough else on the team now to pay attention to that hopefully he can go through those growing pains at the bottom of the order and uh, not, even if he's not helping the White Sox, at least he won't be hurting them early in his career. Yeah, also when it comes to like that, that early... Uh, contract extension kind of reminds me of Tim Anderson a little bit in which Anderson you know, signed an early extension and then struggled and you know it does buy you a certain amount of time just because what are they going to do with you? You already signed, you already locked in for a major league contract. You're going to be making money, you know, a certain amount of money based on you know even if you're in the minors, you know, if you get sent down, you're still making that money. You're still on the books for six years so you know, you're just gonna have to sit back and just uh try not to get too angry at bat after at bat and just hope that in the big picture he figures it out it does bring a certain peace of mind even if uh you know, i guess it's peace of mind on one hand and just uh uh just dealing with it on the other because uh there's just a certain amount of uh 
yeah, he's he's there definitely until his contract runs out, until a better guy comes along, and I don't think there will be. Uh, I think that's a very pessimistic way of looking at it, but I think either way, whether he's great, whether he's bad, uh, his contract does give you reason just uh, have to uh, just grin and bear it. Yeah, White Sox fans have a lot of practice with that, at least. So yep. <laughs> we can bear a lot. Uh, so you mentioned Nick Madrigal uh, as potentially the only kind of service time games that the front office will be playing at the beginning of this year. Do you think that they'll try to extend Madrigal? Do you think they already have? Do you think there's mutual interest? What What is your read on that situation? Uh, right now, I guess my read was off on Robert, so I'm not inclined to put too much stock in what I'm thinking <laughs> right now. But I think with Madrigal, uh, part of it is that, you know, given that he doesn't hit for any power, he's not going to make a ton in arbitration. So it's not as crucial to get that, you know, second and third arbitration year under control, maybe even fourth arbitration year if he's a super two. Uh, so there's that. I, I think Madrigal might be... Uh, surprisingly expensive just because if he does hit for say you know his 300 plus average year after year the way he his hit tool says he might be able to uh, batting average does pay an arbitration so he's not going to be like dirt cheap uh, if he does max out his talent so I'm, I'm you know I, I guess I don't think he's going to be like a, a four million five million dollar option second and third year I think he could be pushing 10 but uh, I could see the White Sox wanting a slow play they did say um, later in the season and into the offseason that they did think he was behind Robert in terms of just, I guess, how eager they were to get him in the lineup and how many reps he had left in Charlotte. So, uh, you know, maybe there's that. Also, Danny Mendick, um, when you look at him and you look at uh, the way he played in September, played pretty well, and um, there's reason to give him at bats. So if you start Mendick, say, even... You know, the first month, you know, if, you're, if you're not trying to make it all about service time manipulation, and you do want to give Mendick a fair shake at second base and give him regular playing time for three to four weeks. I mean, his his September, he hit 308, hit two homers. Magical, you know, his first month, it'd be great if he hit 308. I, I think if he hit two homers a season over the fence, uh, you might be ahead of the game. Uh, so there's reason to think that Mendick in his second month, his second go around, could be as productive as Magical's first at bats. So may as well try to give him some runway into the season and see what he does and then call it Magical as uh, the need presents itself. Um, but uh, yeah, I think Magical is the guy full time and, and big picture. And if they did work out an extension for... I guess something along the lines of a more, I guess the extensions we're used to, sale, Eaton range, like 30 million guaranteed. I could see them doing that. But Mendick at least is a real reason to give him playing time. And it's not all about just trying to knock down a guy's price. So this is a good uh, segue into our next topic, which is talking about the opening day roster. Because the way I see it, there are currently 21 locks for the 26-man roster. He has Monty Grandal, James McCann, Jose Abreu, Tim Anderson, Yoan Mancada, Edwin Encarnacion, Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, Nomar Mazzara, Leury Garcia. On the position player side, Lucas Giolito, Dallas Keuchel, Reynaldo Lopez, Gio Gonzalez, Dylan Cease, Alex Colome, Aaron Bummer, Evan Marshall, Kelvin Herrera, Jace Fry, and Jimmy Cordero on the pitching side. And of course, that is all assuming that the, all those guys make it through spring training in good health, which is not necessarily a safe bet, especially uh, considering there's a couple guys in there who are coming off of injuries. Um, but so who do you, it sounds like you think Danny Bendick will be the opening day second baseman or are you do you just think he should be the opening day second baseman? I think he could. Uh, I'm, you know, as, as I mentioned, I'm not sure about Magical one way or another. I don't have a great read on the situation when it comes to likelihood, but I could see him. There's reason to play him. I think uh, Danny Duffy, I imagine, would be starting opening day, so it would be a lefty on the mound. So even if he's platooning and, and sharing playing time at short and filling in around the infield with Leary as he bounces around, uh, I could see him still getting that start. Um, when it comes to, uh, yeah, I guess, the big... Uh, opening day questions. I think Magical is one of them. The other one is Michael Kopech when it comes to a lock. Um, you know, he's another guy too where I would put him, I guess I would pencil him into Charlotte's rotation. I think the smart thing to do and, and just the generous thing to do is pencil him into Charlotte's rotation just because even though he should be fully back from Tommy John surgery and, and you know, reports were that he was throwing, uh, you know, 98, 99, you're pretty much back to his velocity. Still has to get in the habit of 
you know, facing live competition that's trying to hurt him. I think he, he's got to get, you know, in the habit of getting up and down every five days and pitching five innings plus every five days. And it seems like, you know, giving him a couple weeks in Charlotte just to get used to that while they have five functioning starters seems like the smart way to go. Um, but I think, you know, may, maybe if Madrigal uh, starts, you know, gets the extension and he's the opening day starter and Kopech is ready to go and clearly one of the best five starters, then, you know, that might be two more locks right there. Yeah, my read on Kopech is is kind of that that's what the White Sox are looking to do. That seems like from just what Rick Hahn has said and the way that they've built their roster, they want Kopech to start at AAA. What I'm curious about is, you know, say Gio Gonzalez comes down with shoulder soreness during spring training and gets a late start or something like that, and they have to go with a fifth starter before him or one of the other guys is ready, do they – change those plans and go with Kopech or do they go with a guy like Ross Detweiler or somebody else on a minor league deal? Um, and of course, you know, Detweiler would be, or somebody of that ilk would be extremely disappointing based on mm-hmm. what else they've done this off season, right? If they stuck so closely to that Kopech plan. Yeah. Dylan Covey too is uh, still hanging around, but uh, I guess the one good thing about the first uh, couple weeks of the season, there are a couple off days. So if you want to go with four starters while trying to give Kopech a start or two in the minors, it's not completely disheartening. So, you know, maybe that's one way to go. Yeah. And I want to go back to second base for a second because I kind of feel, and this is just a gut feeling sort of based on years of following the White Sox, that I think that if they don't go with Madrigal and if they don't sign someone like Jason Kipnis or, you know, one of those veteran free agents, I kind of think it'll be Leori Garcia at second on opening day. And I think he'll probably get more regular playing time than Mendick does until Madrigal's ready. It just seems like, like Renteria really likes Garcia and, and what he can bring to the table in terms of just, you know, professional at-bats, not necessarily long at bats, but but pretty decent contact. Pretty, he just seems like the kind of insurance policy that Renteria would want to rely on, especially with a lot of new guys coming in and a lot of young guys coming in. Is he'd he'd want maybe somebody a little bit more experienced and sure-handed at second. But that's just I don't know. That that's my instinct. Can you uh, do you see that at all? Well, it's funny you mentioned you're you're leading up to it with something the White Sox have done and just following him. I thought you were going to say Yolmer. Well, there is Yolmer. Yeah, I, yeah he's I mean, still out there. He's still out there. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to sign him if you think that Madrigal will contribute at all this year. If you if they really think that Madrigal needs a full season in AAA, which I can't imagine that they would, that's the only time that I can really see Yolmer making sense and not redundant to Garcia. Yeah, I think it makes it doesn't make much sense for Yolmer either. I think he saw the writing on the wall, especially when you win a gold glove and uh, then don't get asked back, at least in, you know at the dollar value you're supposed to be uh, projected for. So, yeah, I would expect him to look somewhere where maybe there is a starting job or at least a questionable starter uh, that might be able to usurp over the course of a full season. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm skeptical, but just... Uh, given that he's still out there, given how popular he was, there is the the idea in my head that he could be like another Gordon Beckham situation where they bring him back in a bench roll. Um, but yeah, that would count. That, that would basically count Mendick out, I think, because Mendick has options, and I, I'm assuming Yolmer would be on a uh, major league contract, does not have options, so that does muddy it up a bit if you do like Mendick's you know, long-term viability as a bench bat. So I could see Leary there. I think it also depends with Leary what they plan to do with right field Missouri. You know, whether they plan to make him a true platoon bet, whether they try to see what he looks like against lefties themselves after, you know, he's in the system a little bit. Menachino gets a look at him and, you know, maybe they try to make a tweak or two. Um, but if he has to be pressed in outfield duty, and I guess that depends on, you know, what they do with Angle too as a right-handed outfielder. Uh, I guess it depends on where they put him. But I think when it comes to Laria, I think there are just too many outfield bats possible for him to where I think Mendick will get a fair amount of playing time, even if he isn't like the uh, everyday automatic penciled in second baseman. So turning to the bench for a second, right now I think McCann and Garcia are the only two guys that you could say, well, I, I, unless Garcia is starting at second, um, but they, they're the bench guys, right, at least for the whole of the season. Um, and so we've got 
essentially two more slots there, depending on whether Garcia starting or Mendick is starting. Who do you think? Is it Engel and Collins, or do they go with a shorter bench? Who who do you think the leader in the clubhouse is right now for the last spots on the roster? I think initially it is Angle and Collins. I think they can add an infielder, add an outfielder. We've been talking about the right-handed outfielder to you know, serve as a caddy for Mazzara. And there are a couple guys still out there that might fit the bill. Uh, it doesn't make sense to go with a longer bullpen just because of the off days early in the season, the tendency for rainouts and snowouts and bad weather. So I don't think they would go with more than an eight-man bullpen. So there, there's some way to fit all those guys in there. Uh, but I would guess it would be Angle and, and just the guys who are replaceable until uh, Magical is up and maybe even Kopech is up and they make some some larger revisions. The one, the one guy I guess I'm kind of interested in just based on Rumors are not even, maybe not even, you know, rumors is too strong a word, but just some thoughts, and I think Bruce Levine is the one generating them, is James McCann, whether he's going to be traded just because Yasmani Grandal is there now. And I can't tell whether that's, um, you know, whether that's just people not used to the White Sox having two viable options for one position, you know, having a one-ply roster and, and needing every single guy they have and thinking two is just excessive. Or whether there is something to that just because, you know, maybe there's a team that needs a catcher. Uh, maybe they want to do McCann a solid just because he is going to be in his walk here and to reduce his playing time after an all-star season is, uh, you know, not the kindest thing to do to him. You know, even if it does fit the uh, team's goals very well to bring in somebody like Grandal. So I don't really have a... Uh, yeah, it does make sense, I think, to trade them based on how many catchers are still out there and, and, and the way teams have gone about solving that position and the way McCann, you know, his track record isn't that great to get a ton back for him. I think he makes more sense to be Giolito's catcher and to give Grandal a backup in case injury or, uh, you know, and, and, and play him to his strengths. Uh, but that's just something that's been out there and paying attention to just because I can see the argument for moving him. I just don't see a great return for him. Are there any bullpen arms either in the minors or still out in free agency that you have your eye on as far as filling out the back of the bullpen or the front of the bullpen I should say well I think based on the the prices that relievers assigned for and Will Harris just signed and uh Craig Stammen, uh, Stammen just signed for three years apiece for being in their mid-30s, and yeah, that was the kind of reliever deal that we would make fun of uh, maybe like five to eight years ago, and now it's seen as kind of commonplace based on how important bullpens are and, uh, you know, I guess just how much they've been elevated over the course of a full season. Uh, but, you know, as we talked about last week with Josh, that it just really, you know, none of these guys really seem like great bets, just be, whether it's diminishing velocity, inability to miss bats, um, just I, I didn't really like the idea of them being somebody who changed the complexion of the bullpen and really changed the way that uh, Rick Renteria would go about managing the late innings. And so when you look at the rest of the bullpen, I can't see them bringing in another arm. I mentioned uh, Yoshihisa Hirano uh, as somebody who is a splitter-heavy guy, and, and the White Sox have had success with those guys. Um, you know, maybe Dan Hudson is still out there as an upper-market guy, but... Uh, right now, I just see them mainly going in-house. They basically have like one reliever spot to fill, and they have some interesting options. When you look at the guys who are on the 40-man, there's uh, Ian Hamilton, if he stops having a Frank Grimes-type uh, type life. Uh, there's Matt Foster, who made himself interesting. Not a whole lot. To, uh, yeah, they're, they're, He doesn't really have eye-popping stuff, but he... Yeah, he's got a kind of a heavy fastball and competes with it well. Zach Birdie, we know his story. Uh, Carson Fulmer might be... Uh, it's his last uh, option year, or he's out of options. So the White Sox are going to have to make a decision one way or another. If he has a good spring, I could see the White Sox carrying him just because they don't want to lose him. Uh, if other teams might be interested. If he has a bad spring, then I can see the White Sox just saying, oh, we'll try to pass you through waivers, whatever happens, happens. But he's somebody I think the White Sox might have to make room for if somehow he puts it all together. I wouldn't count on that, but just that possibility is out there for as long as he's on the roster and as long as uh, uh, he is out of options. Yeah, that's a good point about Fulmer. I hadn't considered that. And and certainly, you know, he has live enough stuff to be a bullpen contributor still, but um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he's not pitching especially well, how committed the White Sox are to keeping him versus 
perhaps giving breaking in somebody like Hamilton a little bit more or giving a non-roster invite a shot. Um, and that's the kind of stuff I'm sure that you guys will be talking about a lot more on the podcast and that we'll be talking about on the website as spring training approaches. And it is quickly approaching uh, only a few weeks away from pitchers and catchers reporting, really. So very exciting. Um, but with that, we're going to take a little break and we'll be back to talk about some goings on around the league after this message. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed compatible X by gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. After this offseason, you might be thinking about heading to spring training to see the White Sox in action. And why wouldn't you? Arizona is always a great time. And if you're thinking about going, make sure your first stop is visitarizona.com slash springtraining. There you will learn about why Arizona is a one-of-a-kind spring training experience with all 10 stadiums within 50 miles of Phoenix. Check out amazing restaurants and bars nearby in each city, including craft breweries like Four Peaks, Angel's Trumpet, Ale House, and Goldwater Brewing Company. Don't forget, there is more to Arizona than watching baseball. Explore Arizona's incredible landscapes and thrilling outdoor adventures. Check off must-see destinations like the Grand Canyon and Monument Valley. Arizona is a fantastic destination to bring the family along. If you're thinking about taking the kids down during spring training, Arizona has family-friendly resorts and hotels offering plenty of fun, from water parks, horseback rides, and wildlife parks that the kids will all enjoy. I'm actually from Arizona, and I can't recommend going to check out spring training enough. It's really intimate, it's really fun, the weather's beautiful, and the baseball is great. There's no better time to check out the new White Sox players than during spring training. And the best place to start your spring adventure is visitarizona.com slash springtraining. Again, that's visitarizona.com slash springtraining. We are back. This is still Greg Nick sitting, or not, well, I am sitting, and I assume you're sitting too, Jim, but we're not sitting together. However, we are talking White Sox uh, on the internet and on a podcast. Um, so the Sox weren't the only team to make a move around New Year's or New Year's week. The Twins finally filled their starting rotation uh, by signing Homer Bailey and Rich Hill. And so Bailey signed a one-year $7 million deal. Hill signed a one-year $3 million deal with heavy incentives because of uh, he's currently rehabbing an elbow injury. Uh, Jim, what are your thoughts on Bailey and Hill as the Twins' main starting pitching acquisitions this offseason? I, you know, based on what I thought they were trying to do and based on what I've read from Twins writers, Twins bloggers, uh, it does seem like a disappointing return. The White Sox kind of chased them out of the Zach Wheeler uh, sweepstakes, pushed the price out of the range. So even if the White Sox didn't land Wheeler, at least they served the purpose of keeping him out of the division. Uh, but they they didn't land that tier two starter. They didn't. They weren't interested in Keuchel. I don't think. I don't think the White Sox kept them from getting him. Uh, they had opportunities over the last two years to sign him if they wanted to. So I'm guessing they just didn't really. He didn't have what they wanted. But uh, Madison Bumgarner, they were uh, reportedly in on him, but he wanted to stay in the West. So they lack that. Uh, you know that that either number two starter or, you know, I guess a reputable number three starter. They're counting on uh, Jake Odorizzi to kind of repeat the year he had last year. I think Bailey's a decent number five starter. I think he he rates with Gio Gonzalez in terms of uh, solving that position, that role for, uh, you know, giving depth. Um, but I think the Rich Hill thing is more if they have the kind of year that they had last year where, they get off to a great start. The, the offense is hitting homers at a historic rate or close to it, and the rotation is hanging together, and they have uh, you know their their pitching infrastructure creates a good bullpen, and they don't really need to add. It, it just gives them like a trade deadline type acquisition before they even have to even think about which guys they want to move. That's kind of where Hill comes in. You know, he's going to be ready by June at the earliest, so that gives them a boost, especially if they're counting on Hill giving you know maybe only 80 innings. They just want the 80 innings to be when it counts and. It does help. It gives them something in their back pocket. But if they get off to a slow start with Pineda, you know, having the suspension and him being out of the rotation for a little bit, it might take them a really long time for them to have the five starters they want to have in the rotation all at the same time. 
Yeah, I think the the Hill deal is a, a smart buy low. I mean, he's obviously still very effective when he can go. He just can't go very often. Uh, the Bailey one I'm intrigued by, and I think it'll be a good test to see exactly how clever the twins are because mm-hmm. they sort of have this reputation or this burgeoning reputation along the lines of the Rays or the A's in which, you know, they're, they're getting the most out of a lot of guys and it, kind of a lot went right for them last year. And I think this will be a good test to see how much of that was luck and how much of that was sort of their analytics heavy program and the uh, the smart people in the front office and the coaching staff maximizing the players and whether they can maximize Bailey in the way that, you know, the A's did. Um, I guess, do you think that, would you still call them the division favorites? I think so. Um, the Indians really haven't done anything, and the White Sox have to prove that their free agent acquisitions are on, as good on the field as they are on paper. As we, we've written about and talked about Rick Hahn's, uh track record with free agencies, you know, whether it's been guys who are, you know, theoretically in their primes, guys who are in their, I guess, uh, starting their declines, but shouldn't be bad yet. Just he's gotten horrible returns on them. So I can see situations where, you know, individually Edwin Encarnacion is disappointment because he hits too many pop-ups or Dallas Keuchel, uh, you know, his stuff is diminishing to the point where he gets hit harder a little bit more frequently than he normally does. And Nomar Mazar is just Nomar Mazar. He's not any better than he was and so on and so forth. I can see individual uh, developments like that to where it just keeps the White Sox from meeting their mid-80 win projections and being more of an 80 win team. Uh, So I wouldn't count on them. I I think for the White Sox and I think other teams in the division look at the same way, at least based on the writers and and based on just bloggers, fans, etc., that they need to see the White Sox actually get the kind of production they expect to get from guys they acquire uh, before they really buy into the White Sox being more than a paper threat. And I think that's fair. And I, I think uh, as long as the White Sox treat this like a multi-winter project and not just, you know, the the one winter being a magic bullet and they really don't have much in reserve, whether it comes to spending or trades, um, then I, I think they're fine. I think it's worth making this outlay right now, seeing if you can, you know, sneak into the 90s the way the Twins did and then just keep pushing the following year. Yeah, I definitely see the White Sox right now as an analog for the Twins before last season, where if a lot of things break right, they could be very good, um, but they still are counting on a lot of development from young guys that we haven't seen perform at the major league level yet. Uh, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I I would agree that the Twins are probably still the favorite based on how all of those young guys that they have performed last season and getting a full season from Sano will help and maybe you see some development from Barrios. Um, But I definitely, certainly the rotation is weaker for them than it was going into last season. And I think you can only be happy about that if you're a White Sox fan. We should note that they're still one of the teams rumored to be in on Josh Donaldson, which would obviously change the complexion of their lineup quite a, quite a great deal. It, I, I don't have a great read on the Donaldson situation, and it seems like the media doesn't either, but it, it doesn't seem like he's particularly eager to go to Minnesota, let's say. So can you see them signing Donaldson? And if not, do you think they have a backup plan for a guy like Marcelo Zuna or Nicholas Castellanos, or is it kind of Donaldson or bust for them? Seems like Donaldson or bust just because he does, you know, he, he adds the position where they theoretically can add both offense and defense right now. Sano being a third baseman, not a good one. Donaldson's still a very good third baseman. So if you move Sano to first, you can move Marwin Gonzalez into a utility role that he's best in. And it just improves the twins depth around the diamond all the way around while getting you know, additional offense. Uh, and so that's, that would be great. I think if they miss on Donaldson and it seems really like they are feeling like they're being maybe a little bit used for raising Atlanta's offer because Donaldson really wants to stay with the Braves. Uh, I can, yeah, it doesn't seem like uh, any of the outfielders are a great fit just because one of the twin strengths is a good defensive outfield when they have Buxton and Kepler out there. And I'm guessing they just, they think, you know, the slightly better bat they might get from an Azuna or Castellanos might not offset the 
any any kind of movement they have to <laughs> you know, get one of those guys out of the outfield or at least rotate them out every once in a while. It just might not be worth the way Donaldson could really give them a boost uh, at that one particular position. So I think it's mainly just a value play uh, and maybe a way to create some depth that they can trade from, you know, going into the, you know, deeper in the winter or towards the deadline. But if they don't land him, I'm guessing... It's going to be mainly going with the roster they have because they do have enough depth to cover all the positions credibly. Uh, that's one strength that they, they do have. Even if it does seem like a disappointing winner, they still had such a great season that uh, they're, they don't have to add. They're not missing out. They're just... Uh, they're not protecting themselves against uh, some regression or maybe, as you mentioned, some luck they might have had, but they're still in good shape. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. The one caveat is... There hasn't been much of a market for Castellanos, and not not even in terms of rumors. I mean, the White Sox were one of the few teams connected with them. That doesn't seem particularly likely anymore. So I do wonder if there's any chance they might investigate him as a first baseman because he has just enough bat to play there, and he's a horrible defender everywhere else. So mm-hmm. maybe that can sort of paper over not getting Donaldson, especially if Castellanos has to settle for a pillow contract. Yeah, I think it depends on whether he wants to play first base or whether he really wants to be in the outfield. I could see, you know, when you look at it that way and and Castellanos going to first, Gonzalez moving around, uh, I think Nelson Cruz being the DH and being a very deserving uh, absorber of all the DH Plate appearances does make it a little bit of a trickier fit should they go that route. and, and But, uh, yeah, that is one way they could do it, but it would require him you know, wanting to play first base because I think the outfield, when you have Kepler out there and you have Buxton out there, I think it just makes it harder to try to give a, a below-average outfielder reps out there just because he wants them. Well, I think, Jim, we've talked enough about the Twins because this isn't a Twins podcast. It's a White Sox podcast. So let's answer some questions from the listeners in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. That's right. It's our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, send us questions about the White Sox. Jim, how was my Josh impression? Pretty good. Uh, I think you you had the enthusiasm. I'm doing my best here. Uh, So in... I guess until the season starts or until the regular Sox machine season starts, I should say, all of the B.O. Sox questions will be coming from our supporters on Patreon.com. So if you want to get some questions in, definitely go to Patreon.com slash Sox machine. You get lots of great extra content. And right now you get the chance to ask Jim questions in P.O. Sox. So the first question comes from Mark Sambor. And Jimmy's asking... To what degree will the increased expectations going into 2020 change how Rick Renteria is viewed as a manager? Well, I think it changes his overall, uh, I guess, purpose or his, his reputation quite a bit just because he's always been the guy overseeing rebuild, overseeing young players getting their uh, you know, first uh, taste of the big leagues and having to push them through failure. And uh, he's been, you know, I, I guess when he's had either shortcomings as a manager, whether it's been bunting or some bullpen calls or some, you know, I guess, the typical pushing, pulling a starter type discussions that managers are always involved in, it's always been seen in a teaching mode, like any kind of failure that they've had, any kind of uh, uh, bad call for bunting, base running. It's always been trying to push players, see what they can do, uh, trying to make them learn and, and, and not just give up on a certain strategy after the first failure because they have to learn how to do it. In this case, wins finally do matter for the first time in his career. So that you know has to change the way he does some of his stuff. I think the good thing is, there are a couple of good things. One is that he stopped the random benching thing. Um, I think that would have been a much bigger problem had he continued to bench guys for bad effort every single time uh, the way he did uh, a couple of years ago. That was uh, not a great call for long-term uh, sustainability as manager. That's a way to get a clubhouse to turn on you, especially as you get more veterans in the mix. He did that once just to get some message across, and then after that is more about their own guys placing themselves or you know, communicating better, maybe you know, talking to dugout but letting them stay in the game. And I think that's better, especially as more veterans are in the mix. Um, 
I, I think uh, the other thing is that uh, they're going to be more veterans, so theoretically he shouldn't have to do as much talking. Uh, I think the curious thing will be, you know, I guess with Robin Ventura, <laughs> uh, thinking about that uh, last time the White Sox had veterans they brought in to improve the team and bring leadership. Obviously, that didn't really work with Adam LaRoche and Jimmy Rollins and Todd Frazier and Alex V. Like, all these guys were brought in to bring leadership at the same time, uh, or maybe they were brought in to be veterans and some of them were leaders and some were trying to be, and there was some conflict. But there will be, I guess, some egos to manage. Um, but I think the it's been gradual enough, and I think there's a good enough balance between uh, pitchers and hitters, and, and uh, yeah, the language barrier might not be as big a thing anymore, like with the LaRoche thing, where he had uh, all the southern guys and hunters on one side, and uh, you know nobody really talked to the uh, Spanish-speaking players to get their thoughts about it. Yeah, there might not be that kind of division, so I think there will be more harmony, and I think that really when it comes to Renteria, his biggest selling point is that, you know, when it comes to managers overseeing a rebuild, usually... By the end of the second year or third year, that's when they start yet losing starts wearing on them. Uh, everybody, their message gets lost. Uh, players start to, uh, I guess, yeah, I guess, <laughs> manage themselves or uh, more or less force the or or compel the front office to make a move for a manager just because they don't feel like he's getting through. And whether it's because uh, the White Sox are just better at keeping it to themselves or whether it's just because it's true, uh, we haven't heard anything about Renteria not being um, liked or, or not being a, a guy who uh, you know, is just uh, wearing on people or there's a doghouse. I, I think he has been balanced it well enough to where he does. Uh, he's not a total players manager. He does uh, single some guys out for criticism and he does talk to him in the uh, dugout and you can't see him. He's being very visible about it. But it's not. He doesn't throw anybody under the bus. He doesn't bench anybody for no good reason for long periods of time. And I think that does help him uh, stick through the losing period and get his first chance to manage a winner. So I think I am. Yeah, I guess I am slightly bullish on him being a workable manager for a team that's trying to contend. I think there are better managers, but I also think there are worse ones, ones who do more damage. And I'm hoping that the bunting is behind him and with a more credible veteran rotation makes it easier to manage a pitching staff too. If you had to guess, do you think in the 2020 season when Renteria does things like bunt at an inopportune time, because even if it only happens every once in a while, right, it'll it'll still happen. There's no getting around it. We're not going to agree with every decision the manager makes. So if you had to guess when those things happen in the coming year, will White Sox fans be more frustrated by them because they have a bigger effect on, uh, you know, playoff chances and winning chances because the team is better? Or will it be less frustrating because the team is better? And so, you know, a... a small bunt call here or there might not be kind of the the straw that breaks the camel's back in a way. I think it should be less frustrating assuming that he bunts with the guys he should be bunting with. Like, you know, I think it was most frustrating when like Mankata would give himself up or Leary would in an RBI situation because he's somebody who can put the bat in the ball and drive it a little bit. I think, you know, with the veteran lineup that they have or the veteran additions with Encarnacion and Mazzara and Grandal, that it does make the managing them a lot easier. You just let them swing away. There isn't really, bunting doesn't really come into the equation with any of those guys. I think Mancata having a uh, breakout season, he shouldn't see himself as a small ball player anymore. Anderson winning the batting title. Yeah, that's not really going to be in his profile as well. So I think if you limit the bunting to like Mendick or Angle, if he has to play for any uh, periods of time, or you know Robert, if he's trying to make something happen, or Magical, if that's part of his skill set, being somebody who punches the ball around and looks for holes to bunt to, then I think that's going to be less frustrating. Um, just because you know when it comes to the speed guys and the slappy guys and the guys just trying to get luck into hits however they can, it has to be part of their skill set. So I wouldn't get too mad about that. I think it's going to kind of sort itself out into more natural bunting opportunities and ones that are um, you know, ones that are no longer an option just because of the bats that they do have. Our next question comes from Matthew Povaletis, and he is asking, Jim, does Oscar Colas fit slash make sense for the White Sox in the next international signing period? Well, I wrote about this on Sunday morning, so if you, if you missed it over the weekend or if you're just uh, getting back into it after the holidays, I would recommend checking it out. I kind of 
uh, Oscar Colas. Uh, I'm going to assume it's Colas just based on the way the accent is, but I could be wrong given the way the, how long it took for Luis Roberts' name to be uh, properly pronounced by everybody. I think everybody's now on board with it, but uh, that's uh, some twists and turns. Um, right now, all we know about him is that he's 21 years old. He's Cuban. He's lefty. He's been uh, hanging around J Japan's minor leagues, uh, and he's theoretically a two-way possibility. He's got a power bat, and he can throw up to 95 miles per hour. Um, so it does make him uh, Shohei Tani a little bit, uh, <laughs> based on just the very rough sketch that we can draw of him. Uh, I think right now, if you're going to gauge my... Um, my enthusiasm or my excitement or whatever you want to call it on this idea. I think if you rate it on the Vince McMahon scale, the Vince McMahon gif of the uh, his gradual reaction, I'm right now in the frowning with an eyebrow raise. Just like, hmm. I think that's kind of how I'm looking at it right now. I'm, I'm not smiling it. I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm, You're not I'm not salivating yet. Heavens. Yeah, not feigning yet. Yeah. I'm just more like, yeah, based on the very rough uh, sketch, like the White Sox can use a corner outfield bat. He is a corner outfield based on his profile. Uh, based on the couple of videos there are of him, he does look uh, bigger than uh, uh, Luis Robert does. And based on his stolen base record, I think he's three for seven lifetime is running the bases based on the uh, minor league stats we have seen. So he's not uh, a burner. Um, I'm guessing he's a corner bat, so the White Sox can use that. They can use, uh, uh, yeah, if he's a pitcher, they can use pitching depth. And uh, you know, just their success right now uh, when it comes to evaluating Cuban players has been pretty good. So uh, I'm, right now I'm thinking, like, it doesn't make sense that the White Sox go that route. And looking back on our Luis Robert coverage and uh, even further back with Jose Abreu coverage on uh, Southside Sox, there was always a period like uh, the, the first posts were here's a Cuban prospect coming out, uh, has a very, you know, he's well regarded by scouts, has a certain track record of success. Uh, the White Sox seem like a good fit. It always starts out kind of that way, and then we'll see where it goes from there. Um, the White Sox have had, you know, obviously great returns with the Brayu. Um, haven't had returns yet with Robert, but <laughs> assuming, you know, based on the way the White Sox have extended him before their plate appearances, they obviously feel great about him. Maybe Dan Viciato was really the only miss they've had, and that really wasn't a big one. It was four years and ten million guarantee at the time, and you know, we had some homers. Just really didn't develop as the uh, as the strike zone expanding hitter they thought he might be, and so it didn't really work out. He's been big in Japan, but just didn't quite make it work here. But that's not really a bad miss. It was worth a shot. So I really, you know, this is the one case where I would trust the White Sox based on how they respond to him. They, uh, um, you know, if. You know, it should uh, Colas come out and the White Sox are, you know, linked to him step by step as the uh, the, the price tag goes up and the bidders are, are weeded out and, and only a few remain. I could see that being the case. I could see if the White Sox aren't as interested as you think they might be. I would assume that Marco Patti kind of knows uh, it or, or whoever they have, uh, you know, scouting Cuba or their connections there. You know, is telling them something that uh, you know might make them less enthusiastic, and I think you would have to at least in this very specific case trust what the White Sox are doing. So right now, I think there's reason to think that the White Sox would be a good landing spot. They obviously, uh, you know, they 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 have the money to do so, as much money as anybody, uh, and they have a, a track record of paying for these guys and providing a very good uh, uh, support system for them. So it makes a whole lot of sense based on the very rough. Uh, information we have we just need to know if he's really the real deal or if he just has some really loud tools that uh maybe don't quite make up a ball player package yet would you be happier with Colas, say taking up basically all of the international uh pool money for the next signing period if the white Sox get him or with a more traditional sort of class of international players where maybe they get you know a top 20 guy from the dominican and a couple guys below that and and sort of fill out the class from there well, I think I would be, you know, that's basically what they did this this uh, last signing period. They signed Yolbert Sanchez for $2.5 million, and they signed a couple other guys for uh, six figures, and then a couple, you know, uh, interesting five-figure signings, but they had a whole lot of money left over, and they traded it to uh, get rid of Wellington Castillo's buyout, Nate Jones's buyout. Um, so, you know, if you 
add that money to what Sanchez signed for. That's basically you're talking now 3.75 million, uh, maybe even 4 million if they you know, have, have even more money left over. And that's kind of the same outline, you know, 4 million for Coloss and then, you know, some money left over for some other guys. But it'll be, uh, you know, I, I don't have a good feel for, I, I guess we don't really know what a guy might command when he comes out at the market at the top of his game, like say Otani, when he came out, that was December. That was after teams had already spent money and they had to scramble to acquire more. I think at the time Otani signed, the Rangers could have topped, uh, given the top offer 3.5 million. He ended up signing with the Angels for I think 2.5. I, I think it was more of a comfort thing, a West Coast thing, than signing for one additional million. Uh, maybe because maybe with the Los Angeles market, he could make up that with endorsements and with uh, uh, just the amount of uh you know japanese uh, uh the, the size of the japanese community there makes a whole lot more sense just for comfort and you know all the additional bonuses there uh but we haven't seen anybody enter the markets in their i guess physical prime or, or ahead of the development curve at a typical draft pick prospect age um where they can enter it as teams have all the money to spend. Like a team like the Orioles that doesn't really spend internationally, maybe that's the one time they try to go all out for a guy like that and try to spend what would be like something like $8 million if they could somehow max out their both their bonus pool and the maximum they can acquire from other teams, which I think is 60% of... Uh, their own bonus pool. Um, yeah, that's the case where maybe that's the time a team like the Orioles gets involved. So the White Sox do have to uh, collect money. And we haven't seen the White Sox do that yet. They've been the team trading it away and not acquiring it. So uh, there, there are some few unknowns here based on, you know, aside from the unknowns about Kloss, uh just the unknowns about uh, what a 20-year-old player does in this market when he's entering in his prime. Thank you, Matthew, for the question. Our next question comes from Southpaw Jackson. I know it will never happen, but knowing that Moncada could be moved back over to second and the Sox could trade Madrigal, would you like to see them make a run at Nolan Arenado? I wouldn't mind it just because if the Rockies are moving him only because of their own payroll issues and some poor investments they made that looked unwise at the time. And uh, now we're looking to get under out from under a deal that still looks pretty good for the next uh, four to five years. Uh, it's not a bad idea. I would say the opt-outs maybe are a bit concerning just if you feel like you're uh, giving up a, you know, couple years of yeah i would say maybe four to five years of a fixture for somebody who could leave uh that might be a bit concerning i think with Makata, if he does move again i think his next move would be the outfield um at second base i you know his weaknesses at second base the dexterity based plays the quick pivots the throwing from odd angles the gloving on one side to throw to the other those are the plays that seem to elude him. And third base, I think, it was a lot simpler for him because his body was going in one direction. All his throws were going to his left, either to second or to first, or even a home in front of him. Uh, all his momentum was carrying him basically in the direction he was going to throw to. Um, so it seems like third base is home in the infield. If he moves again, I think the White Sox, you know, if they want to get a plus defender out of him or even somebody who's an average defender, because I think he has a minus defender at second base, I think that would come in the outfield, whether it's uh, you know, right field or you mean I don't think they need a center field now with Robert, but even left field, you know, having a guy with his straight line speed and not, you know, I guess demanding too much of his arm for somebody who's never made outfield throws. Seems like the most reasonable place to move him, but I think for the time being, his home will be third, and the White Sox will be happy to play Magical at second, so it does seem unlikely, but I do wish that the White Sox were a little bit more adventurous with Moncada's playing time the way the Cubs were with Chris Bryant, just throwing him out there and, and counting on not some freak injury to occur, and just giving him the reps that show that he can do it, and that does it frequently enough to where it's just not weird because I think there is some advantage to playing him out there if there is some kind of great roster opportunity that happens, whether it's Arenado, whether it's somebody else who uh, you know makes the infield crowded and Mancata is really the most natural guy to move out there. Thank you, Southpaw, for that question. And my vote is to get Nolan Arenado because he is very good at baseball and I would like to watch him in a White Sox uniform. 
Well, thank you, everyone, for those P.O. Sox questions. That'll do it for P.O. Sox and for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine and visit SoxMachine.com for the latest and greatest regarding the Chicago White Sox, the offseason, and pretty soon news from spring training. You can also follow me on Twitter at GregNixHuman or subscribe to my other baseball podcast, Duck Snort. Subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the Google Play Music Stores or wherever you get your podcasts. And help support the show by signing up to be a friend of the podcast at patreon.com slash socksmachine. And as a reminder, you'll get to ask P.O. Sox questions if you're a Patreon supporter until the regular season starts. Thanks for listening to the Sox Machine podcast. For Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson, I'm Greg Nix signing off. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.